Well, just a reminder, as uh, we're wrapping up this summer, we'll talk about that in a minute, that has nothing to do with the lesson. Well, in fact, uh, I was talking to a couple of you said it's nice that we don't, yes, Tom Flynn? Yes, go for it. Sorry. You have a pacemaker rod. Okay. We've been praying for you with congestive heart failure. So, All right, Rod. Let's put that down. In fact, let's, let me pray for you right now. Father, we just pray right now for Rod as he faces the, having this pacemaker put in tomorrow. We pray that that will help rectify many of the problems he's been struggling with uh, with the heart. Uh, Lord, I know he and his wife are new to the area, so we just pray as well uh, for support there. Be with the surgeon, guide him or her as they perform this procedure. In Jesus' name, amen. Aren't you glad we can go to the Lord for prayer and he hears us and allows us to... to... Well, anyway, speaking of which, this has nothing to do with the lesson. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to mow nowadays with this, this heat, and it's great. But some of you are saying, you know, I'm looking for a lawnmower is because I know it's going to start raining again. And so the board, I thought, could help us. Tom Flynn, his lawnmower is great. He loves exercising, and I, I thought I'd show you a picture of this. Uh, you get your exercise, and you can mow. Tom, Tim, who's on our board, is kind of our sports guy, so he's got a souped-up John Deere. I thought you might appreciate that one. I said this has nothing to do with the lesson. Gail Stoller is our resourceful one. He still has the mower he used when he was in his teenage years mowing lawns. So it's just marvelous. And uh, Mike Razor, who serves on the board, is our accountant. And it's great because he doesn't have to pay for gas for his lawnmower. So he's loving that. Uh, or you can use the one I use, which is marvelous. Uh, <laughs> you do have to feed this one. But anyway, that has nothing to do with the lesson. But uh, a little humor for us, right? Well, as we look to this uh, men's, uh, we're dealing with the difficult questions. Just a reminder that we'll meet on the 22nd to wrap up this series. We're going to look at salvation in light of what's happened with Joshua Harris, uh, the, the man who uh, <laughs> who's a, was a minister of the gospel and a prolific author. Many of you know who I'm talking about. Just came out this past week where he uh, denied, in fact, he says, I'm no longer a Christian. And so what do you do with that? in light of salvation and faith and works, etc. And so we're going to weave that into the lesson on the 22nd. But today we're dealing with Christ. Uh, and this material, much of this, if uh, you're in the Sunday school class I teach on Sundays, we address this. And I had so many requests that I do it for the men's Bible study. So this is a bit of a hybrid of it. It's very relevant. I mean, I, most of you sitting in this room never even questioned the deity of Christ. It's, it's Jesus God, right? Uh, however, it's very prevalent in evangelicalism. In fact, um, a leading satellite atlas that we use, an atlas of, the, of Israel that we use for our, our ancient tours, the man that wrote it, uh, has, uh, who has led the Master's College continuous, well, it's a... Uh, study program over in Israel for years has just come out that he's denied the deity of Christ. So it is a prevalent issue, and I, I want to address this today. Is this Jesus of Nazareth that we read of in the Gospels, is he truly God? And how do you respond to that? Because obviously there are many outside our fold who would question that. And so that's what we're going to look at today, and you should have a set of notes. By the way, if you go to our website, uh, the notes and the podcast are now available to you. 
So you can go back and look at those and that resource is available to you. Well, let's look at the support for deity. The humanity of Christ few would question. Even my advisor back in Aberdeen would have no problem saying Jesus of Nazareth truly existed, but she would say, no, he wasn't God. Uh, that was an embellished story from those who followed Jesus and then wanted to make him quite the hero in their literature and in their movement called Christianity. Uh, she's a New Testament scholar, by the way. Uh, and so how do you respond to that? Well, let me give you some things from the text as we look at this. First of all, Scripture claims that Jesus is God, right? I'm going to give you two texts. I want you to turn to John 1.1. 1, 1. And if you're joining us today, this is the first time you've been with the men's Bible study. Normally, we do an in-depth Bible study, and we're, we are going to do that this fall as we look at the, the book of Philippians, which, by the way, I think... It's such an apropos book in light of where we are. We need joy and contentment, don't we? And uh, uh, Philippians addresses that. Um, but uh, this summer, we've kind of taken a little bit of a break and done this topical study. But in John 1.1 1, 1 is a key text uh, to this discussion on Jesus being God. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and if you have a Jehovah Witness Bible, it says, a God right? Uh, anyone have uh, a different reading than a God <laughs> in here in this room? What do you have? Jesus was God. Anyone have a net Bible? Fully God. All right, let's, let's look at this and bear with me. We're going to deal a little bit with the Greek today. I told my Greek students, as you preach, etc., Greek is like underwear. You need it for support. Just don't let anyone see it. Uh, because you can create a caste system and we don't want to do that. But we do need to look at two very important Greek grammatical constructions. Uh, you, you need these two in arsenals in your, your, your uh, two weapons in your arsenal. Uh, the first of these in John 1.1, 1, 1, this is the Greek text. And again, you, we have the translation. The, the question is this phrase, kai theos hein halagos, and God was the word. We would translate it, and the word was, and then the question is, how do we translate this latter part? Is it a God? That is, is it indefinite, or is it definite the God? Or, a realm we don't often think of in English, is it what we call qualitative? Fully God is the, how the Net Bible is understanding it. In your notes, I mentioned that the Greek construction is extremely important. You might as well learn Greek now. You'll be speaking it in heaven. Uh, it is the, what John has done is he has stated something that's, that is the most concise and precise way of stating that Jesus is God yet distinct. Look at this. In, in the bottom of the notes, there's a footnote. It's called the Caldwell Rule, if you're wanting to know what it's called. Grammarians, Greek grammarians have come out and looked at ancient Greek literature and said this construction fits always this pattern. And this pattern is laid out there. You don't need to know it, but it's, it's called an Arthurus preverbal predicate nominative. <laughs> All right. Don't need to know that this morning. What you do need to know is this construction almost always is qualitative, sometimes definite, but never indefinite. You cannot translate this was a God. It does not fit grammatically. Um, 
This is one of my weaker moments when the flesh got a hold of me. I had two Jehovah Witnesses come to the door during my doctoral studies. I was over in Aberdeen. I saw them coming up the street because my, my, my room that I rented from this lady was also my office. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm working. I see these, these two come up the street. I'm like, oh, no, here we go. And they come to the door, and I had, uh, you know, I said, you know what? You can just save your breath. Uh, I, I believe Jesus is God. And they said, well... How do, you know, you, you can't believe that because in the Greek, and they went on to quote this text. And I said, oh, you know the Greek. I said, one moment, I'll get my Greek New Testament. So I brought it out and I handed it to them upside down and they're flipping through it. And I said, it would be helpful to turn it the other way first. I know this was not good. It was not one of the better moments in my life. And, and we're looking at this and I said, no, no, it's, this is a Caldwell rule. It has to be translated either fully God that is, he's God yet distinct, or it's the God, but you cannot translate it a God. It does not work. Uh, and what John has done by using this construction is brilliant. He's saying Jesus is fully God yet distinct, holding to that binetarianism. And, and you miss this in an English translation. That's why the Net Bible's trying to, to render it. It's difficult. But this verse is, is a powerful text for what we call binetarianism, two persons, one essence. Questions on this? It's huge. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, next time Jehovah Witnesses come to the door, take them to this text. Say, no, 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 no. And, and to translate it, Jesus and the word was God is fine, but it's more than that. And it's very significant. Let me give you another Greek grammatical construction. It's true across the board, all right? So this isn't just true. I mean, if we picked up uh, another Greek writing, for, uh, for instance, uh, Josephus or Herodotus from the first century, it's, it's always going to be the case. And that's, this is called a Granville Sharp rule, and it's Titus 2.13. Turn to that text. Let me show you this one. So if you ask me, does Scripture teach that Jesus is God? Well, John 1.1 1, 1 does. Even my advisor in Aberdeen would say, yeah, uh, the text states that it's clear that, that John's, John doesn't know what he's talking about, but he is saying Jesus is God. Titus 2.13, let me give you another. Let's look at this. And it says, as we wait for the happy fulfillment of our hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this construction... Uh, again, there's a pattern that's followed, and you can see that where you have an article, singular, personal, and non-pro. It fits this pattern, and when you have it, what is going on is this. The article, in the Greek it's this, which we translate the, or we can translate other ways, followed with an and, okay, that's the chi, means that these two nouns, in this case, God and Savior are referring to the same person. It, it combines them. Oops, what happened? So sorry. And that same person is, of course, Jesus, right? And so what is Paul stating in Titus? He's stating that Jesus is not only our Savior, but he's also God Almighty, right? 
And so scripture clearly affirms there's no getting around this grammatical construction, nor is there getting around the one that we saw in John 1.1, that the text is clearly stating Jesus is God. All right? So number one, scripture claims that Jesus is God. And I give you some other examples that support uh, what I'm telling you, and you can pick up any leading Greek grammar, and they're going to go into the Granville Sharp and the Caldwell Rule. It's standard. I'm not just making this up. Uh, this is standard stuff, understanding that Scripture affirms the deity of Christ. Let me give you another statement here as we look at whether Jesus is God. There is a personal awareness, this is page two, and self-proclamations that Jesus is God. Paul may have got it wrong, and John, but let's turn to John 8. Not only must they got it wrong, Jesus must have been lying. Because look at John 8, 57. In John 8, 57, the Judeans replied, first of all, we have this dialogue about Abraham they said, you are not 50 years old, referring to Jesus. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth. Before Abraham came into existence, I am. So Jesus, with his own lips, claims that he is God. And I mentioned this in your notes. He's claiming eternality. That is, that before Abraham, he was there. And that he's the source of his own existence. No one created him. And of course, this is an echo of Exodus 3, right? I am who I am. And so, not, yeah, scripture may be wrong, but even the red letters of our New Testament, Jesus himself declares that he is God, right? And that's not the only uh, thing. Daniel Doriani, uh, in his article, The Deity of Christ and the Synoptics, which I have listed there, makes, uh, highlights Jesus' explicit claim that he is God. He claimed divine right to judge humanity. You can see the list here. The right to forgive sins. I mean, who forgives sins? Only God, right? The right to grant eternal life. Who allows that? Only God. His presence with, was with God's presence. And you can read the list there. And he identified himself with the Father King. Uh, C.S. Lewis is right. This is the quote on the last page. And you've heard this before. You must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or he's a madman. He's crazy. You can't have your cake and eat it too. He's not just a nice guy that went around teaching in the first century. If that's the case, why did they crucify him? Right? Even if he was crazy and no one believed it, why would you crucify him? they understood, the religious rulers understood what Jesus was claiming, right? Go back to John 5, the whole pool at Bethesda, right? Remember that? They knew exactly what he was doing and they wanted to kill him. And that he was he claiming to be God. And so not only does scripture affirm the deity of Christ, but Christ himself states he was God and makes statements that only deity can claim. Questions on this? This is huge. And that list that Daniel's put together is superb. Questions? Nope. All right. Yeah, I heard a voice. Is there a, uh, yes, Al. Any significance in the fact that uh, when he refers to Abraham, he refers to Abraham in the past tense, but to himself 
Yeah, good observation. Uh, Abraham is past tense, and for Jesus, he's using the present tense, which has no beginning or end. Yeah, good, good observation. So let me give you another here. Divine actions performed by Jesus. This is that letter C there in your notes. He forgives sins. Remember that whole scene? In fact, turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke 5. Again, his enemies <laughs> note several things in the process. Luke 5, 21. In fact, you start at verse 20. This is the paralytic. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't even heal him. First, he deals with the spiritual need. The experts in the law and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? They understood what he was claiming. And so his actions that he performs, granting life, creating the world, judging the world, all of these affirm the deity of Christ. Right? So they are divine actions performed by Jesus. Uh, so not only does he make the statements, he also does them. Right? Let me give you another. The attributes of deity ascribed to Jesus. Now, we're going to get a little deeper here theologically, so strap, uh, put your uh, bootstraps on. Here we go. Uh, there's two categories of attributes there that are listed. The communicable, communicable attributes are what people can possess. We can be loving. Jesus was loving, right? I give you a list there, compassion, gentle, all of those we know. But there's also what's called the incommunicable, and these people cannot possess. And you see their eternality, which we just saw when Jesus said, I am. His omnipresence, omniscience, he knew where Nathaniel was sitting, right? Uh, that's, that's superhuman. Uh, omnipotence is all-powerful. And, and so we see attributes ascribed to Jesus that aren't just human, they're also divine. At the bottom of your notes, one scholar writes, in the epistle, now he's referring to his commentary on Romans, the same could be said of other Pauline letters. Paul again and again in a rich variety of ways associates Christ with God with an uninhibitedness which, because it's so familiar, we're apt to pass over without noticing. But which... When once we begin to reflect on the implications of what we're reading, can scarcely fail to strike us altogether extraordinary and astonishing. Early on, the church understood that Jesus was God. Very early on. Kyle. They go hand in hand. Character is tied with the attributes. That is part of that. Yeah. Character is, a, yeah. I think that's a good way to define it. Eugene is a manifestation of his attributes. Um, the two go hand in hand. Good question, though, Kyle. So, yeah. So, the attributes ascribed to Jesus are divine. And let me give you another to wrap this up as we look at the deed of Christ. Similar to God, Jesus serves as the objects of our prayer. Do you think about that? Turn to Revelation. Let's look at this. 
not revelations. It's singular. I jokingly told my New Testament students I'd break their kneecaps with a baseball if I heard them put a plural or an S at the end of revelation. <clears throat> Though someone informed me it's not Lyme's, it's Lyme disease, so I'm guilty of it the other way. So, Revelation 5, 9 through 10, they were singing a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll because you've killed, you were killed at the cost of your own blood, referring to Christ. You have appointed them as a kingdom priest to serve a God and they will reign. They ascribe to Jesus the same thing they described to God earlier in the text. And later in Revelation, remember, John falls at the feet of an angel to worship. And he says, whoa, don't worship me. I'm not God. And yet never does the lamb say, don't worship me. I'm not God. Because the lamb understands I am God. I am. Right? And so we see worship and prayer ascribed to Jesus that's the same ascribed to God Almighty. How is it then that a, a scholar who, an old, old Testament scholar who studied the text, taught the Bible, can deny the deity of Christ? I'm not sure. <laughs> Apart from their own sinfulness. Because the text is so clear. It ascribes Jesus as God. Jesus himself declares himself as God. He performs acts that are worthy of God and demands worship that only God should receive. Yep. Because of the, why did Christ pray? Because of the, the unity between the Father and the Son. And that relationship, that community within the Trinity, think about this, we've been brought into, which is amazing. So it shows the relationship. Yeah, Dick. And the Holy Spirit prays as well. Yep. Well, the three are communicating. Good. Well, questions on this? Yes. Uh, Jeff. Right. The true role of the Son is to take our prayers and intercede on our behalf, right? The book of Hebrews to the Father, and it's to exalt the Father. So, yeah, it's, and I, I notice people's theology, and you know, I'm going to step on toes, but when we pray, we don't say, Dear Jesus. We, we pray to the Father in Jesus' name. And that's an understanding of the roles of the of the Trinity. But I'm not going to lose sleep if you say, "Dear Jesus." But we're, we're praying to the Father, and, and the distinction of the roles there is seen throughout the New Testament. Yeah, in the hand, in the back. First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. Let's jump back to first twenty four. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has brought to an end all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. 
This last enemy will be eliminated as death, for he has put everything in subjection under his feet. But when he says everything has been put in subjection, it's clear that this does not include the one who put everything in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. <laughs> uh, it's a difficult text. Uh, someone want to elaborate on it? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I think Well, yeah, I, well, I don't want to go too far down this path this morning. I can catch you one-on-one, -on -one, but what we're dealing with is, is truly the role of the Trinity. It goes back to the prayer and the distinction of the roles within that Godhead, yet functioning as one. And I think that's part of the problem with some who have denied the deity of Christ is they try to separate the unity of the Father and the Son. Uh, and... That's the problem is, as John 1, 1 clearly states, before it all began was the Word, and the Word is God. And so, yet they are distinct in, in, in getting our minds around the Trinity. That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> uh, and let me go back to this. So, so what, right? What do we do with all of this? Let me give you three things to run with this morning. Number one, only deity could satisfy the wrath of God and grant forgiveness. If Jesus was just a man, we got a real problem, don't we? There exists no viable human solution. Look at Romans 5. This is, this is key. <clears throat> and I think that's what 1 Corinthians is highlighting, by the way, as well, um, in the text that you mentioned, which I didn't elaborate very well, but we'll... In, in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, for by the transgression of the one man, that is Adam, death reigned through the one. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? In verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also the grace will reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Watch this, our Lord. So recognition of his deity is vital that's the only means that we can satisfy the wrath of God. No human could do it. Let me give you another. Only deity could have the power to accomplish this task. We know this, but Hebrews, look at Hebrews 9. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cows sprinkled on those who are defiled, consecrated them, and provided ritual purity, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, note the role of the Trinity, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. Only deity could do this, right? And finally, only deity could present unadulterated love and grace. Second Thessalonians, let's look at this text as well. 
Sorry for the sword drill this morning, but 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us grace, give us eternal comfort and good hope. That's why, Steve, you can testify. You have hope. Because you have Victor, who, your father, who, who knew Jesus as his Savior. And you can say, no, we have hope because we serve a God who has, is victorious over the grave. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good thing you do or say. Jesus isn't just some guru that lived 2,000 years ago or a miracle worker that could work magic <laughs> or some wonderful rabbi or sage No, he's God. He claimed to be God. He acted according as God. And there will be a day when every knee will bow because he is God, whether they like it or not, right? Only deity. But that deity is the one who said, no, I will take on human flesh and I will dwell among my people. And I will restore them so that my righteousness can be theirs. 2 Corinthians 5, right? That's a God we serve. Uh, That should bring comfort to you this morning, right? Forget the Jehovah Witnesses that come to the door. We serve a God who entered time and space. He took on human flesh, but he's still God. And only he could be victorious over death and give us the hope that we have. Questions or comments? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, what a praise, right? Catch me afterwards, because you're dealing with some issues that take us beyond this. C.S. Lewis is right. There's a quote, though, at the beginning of your notes I want you to see. This was a recent book. Uh, If you want to read more on this topic, Dethroning Jesus, which um, it's a response to Bart Ehrman, a a New Testament professor from Duke called Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bach and Wallace write, speaking historically, the earliest Christianity taught about the spirit and personal benefits of knowing an exalted Jesus. An enthroned Jesus, not a dethroned one, is most able to lead us into the knowledge of God and of ourselves. It's vital. They shred the liberals. <laughs> they shred the liberals. So uh, if you want to read more, The Dethroning Jesus is a great book to pick up and to read. Well, let me close in prayer. Father, uh, this is a difficult topic, and there's so much here that we could run with, uh, as already was highlighted a little bit with the Trinity. Others were dealing with issues on what we call peccability, impeccability, and, and we've dealt with some grammatical constructions. At the end of the day, what do we know? Jesus said, I am. 
Jesus claimed to be God. He functioned as God. And according to the rest of the New Testament, he is to be worshiped as God. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to dwell among us. But thank you, most importantly, that you sent him knowing that he was going to take on our sin. And Lord, as we go today and about our activities, give us a, a keen sense and an awareness, a greater understanding and appreciation of what you've done for us. And that when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying through the Godhead directly to you. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.